We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet So continuing into session number two. Uh, part of our, uh, I think this session goes for an hour. Uh, I'm happy to go as late as you want. but um, And then I think I have to go to session three. So we were discussing about, about the West. And so now the question is, when people are speaking about the West, what are they talking about? What is the West? How would you answer this question? Europe. Sorry? Europe. Okay, we'd probably include Europe. What else? America, Australia. Okay. Uh, to, an, to an extent, to a degree, Japan and China. Okay, interesting. And how would Japan and China be part of it? In terms of um, adopting a lot of the philosophies of the West. Okay. Uh, in which field of life? Business yeah. Science. Yeah. So, when we speak of the West, we might speak geographically. Yeah, politics more so now. Yeah. When we speak of the West geographically, we usually mean Europe in the European settler states, right? Uh, when we speak of it in terms of ideas, usually we're speaking of capitalism, right? And usually we're speaking of a constitutional democracy. Okay. And often we're speaking of a bureaucratic government as a way to have stability. Okay. Uh, we're also usually speaking of secularization. Okay. And so let me give you some timelines, because also when we're speaking of the West, we're speaking of a narrative. Okay. And as we go through this, imagine what you would answer to the question, what is the narrative of the Muslims, or the narrative of Muslims in America, or even your own narrative. So when we speak of the West, there is a particular narrative, and usually it begins with the Fertile Crescent, which is where? Iraq, Syria. Okay, Iraq, Syria, Tigris, Euphrates, yeah. And, and then the next big period is usually Greece, as this golden age of thought. Okay. And then the next big period is Rome, as this golden age of governance okay. and empire. And then we have the Dark Ages. What period do the Dark Ages start from and end from, give or take? Yeah, so 400, 500, 1300, 1500, somewhere around there. Okay. And then we have the Renaissance and the Reformation. Okay. And what is taking place in the Reformation? In the simplest sense, people are saying we don't need the church to get to God. We don't need the clergy to get to God. And in fact, the church and the clergy might be hindrances. That also goes hand-in-hand hand with Gutenberg and his Bible. Okay. That now they're able to publish the Bible in mass production, which is making it cheaper. So now it's getting more and more common for people to have a copy of the Bible. Okay. So that's part of the reason we're saying, I don't need to go to the church. I have this right in front of me. 
I can read this for myself. Okay. These are the precursors to our version of the Salafis. That's why a lot of times, pejoratively, people will speak of the Salafis and call them the Protestants. Right? The idea being, I can just read this for myself now. Okay. So the refer and the Renaissance, uh, at the core, I mean, when they were in the Renaissance, no one was saying we're in the Renaissance. Okay. These are a bunch of British thinkers, you know, centuries later, sort of constructing this narrative. And part of the Renaissance was a restructuring of economic systems. Okay. This is through the Medici family. And then move forward, the next big blip in history in the Western narrative. Again, I'm not giving you history, I'm giving you narrative. Okay. The next big blip is the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And in the Enlightenment, they're saying we don't need religion to live a better life. We can do it with philosophy, and in particular, what we call empirical philosophy, like connecting to nature, and then eventually what becomes science and data and such. Okay. And the Industrial Revolution is now mass production. Another massive change in the economy, which leads to a huge rise of a merchant class, which today we'd call the middle class. Okay. And I'm being very simplistic, but this is where we really begin to see the rise of capitalism. Yeah. And, and so this is taking place, and this then leads to the colonial process. Okay. Colonial process be, uh, precedes the Industrial Revolution, but accelerates it, that the Ottoman Empire was this dominant empire, but now the Europeans are able to make guns in mass production. And so the Ottomans start to have to bind the guns from the Europeans to keep up with them. And then the Ottomans are also reaching this point where they have to take out loans to be able to buy these guns. And this is part of the process of the decline of the Ottomans. They get too deep in debt. Sound familiar? So, <clears throat> so that's the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Then the next big blip is modernity. And now the attitude is instead of philosophy, it's science. Science will give us a better life. Science will give us the answers to everything. And then the next blip which is still forming is post-modernity. And the idea of post-modernity is science can give us facts, but it can't give us values. Science can lead to tremendous uh, accomplishments in medicine, but it can also make huge bombs. Because also in the 20th century, how many people were killed in World War I and or World War II? Give me some numbers. 85 million, including soldiers. Yeah, both of them together. I think that's just uh, civilians. Right? Now, I think it's 60 million civilians, and then even higher in terms of soldiers and everything else. But think about this. Millions. It's, in 2017, as violence, as much violence as we have, that's still inconceivable. And so it's looked at after World War II, this is when we start seeing the rise of postmodern discourse, the idea being that, yes, yeah, science gave us a lot, but there's also a lot it can't give us. And so we're also seeing a resurgence of religion. Yeah. And also in the modern era, it's another shift of the structure of economies, where now the whole world is becoming shifting from empires into nation states. Yeah. 
with their own individual economies, with state banks tied into a global economy. And part of postmodernity is globalization, which is also contributing to the rise of religion as an aggressive tool. Meaning part of globalization is that corporations are going to move the companies to wherever it's cheapest to make the products, which means your whole family might have been relying upon this income, but not the factories left. And so when your economy is suffering, one of the tools people use to run people together is aggressive religion. And this is what you're literally seeing in every single religious population. You see it among us, you see it among the Christians in America, you see it among the Jewish settlers, you see it among the BJP in India, you see it among the Buddhists in Myanmar, every single religious population. You see this, this search of aggressive, what we would call far-right-wing religious militancy that you can tie directly in to economy, which is tied into globalization, okay? and tied into sort of not putting uh, science to the side, but not looking at science as having the answers to everything. Okay? This is all part of the narrative of the West. And so back to this point that America is an ideological state, America is a big part of this whole narrative, okay? that moving uh, with the Enlightenment, you have the French Revolution, and then you have the American Revolution. Okay? Where are we going from here? Probably the rise of the market state. The idea being that multinational corporations are stronger than most of the nation states that their factories are in. Okay? An example of that would be something like Nigeria. Right? Shell oil is stronger than the Nigerian government. Right? And this is what you're seeing more and more all across the world. With Trump, the goal is to move the factories back to America. Will he succeed? Probably not. Right? But the point is that when we speak of America as an ideology, we're saying America has a conscious story. Okay? That in the American narrative, what would we say are key parts of the American narrative, in terms of the mainstream narrative, okay, not the history of America. Where does it begin? When does it begin? Anyone? When does the story of America begin? Yeah, according to America. According to America. Yeah. Uh, I'd say just a little bit after that, it begins with Plymouth Rock. Yeah, from the Yeah, which is related to the persecution of, of Christians, yeah. Um, and then what? So then you have the establishment of the colonies, 13 colonies. Then what? Colonial War. So the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. Then what after that? In terms of the American narrative. Not American history. So, uh, oh, you're away. So, so expanding further and further, Louisiana Purchase, so forth and so on. What else? Then what? So I'd say that's throughout the whole process, like including the Articles of Confederation and everything. Then I'd say probably the Civil War, right? To less degree, the War of 1812, that is not as much part of it anymore, but the Civil War. And then what? Gilded Age. Which is when? The Reformation, also the, the, uh, the Reconstruction. So Reconstruction is beginning to become part of the American narrative. I'd say it's not part of the American narrative very much. I'd say the next is the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. And then World War II, the greatest generation. I mean, that's what they are called. Interesting that you say that Reconstruction is beginning to be yeah. because I'm in Oklahoma. Uh -huh. It's very much a part. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Here in Tulsa, yeah. Here in Texas also. Uh -huh. yeah. And then 
And then after that, we have the 60s, Reaganomics, and I mean, in fact, World War II, it's Pearl Harbor of the World War II, and then, then you have 9-11 and now. When you get into the history of America, the narrative doesn't include the genocide of the Native Americans. It doesn't include the transatlantic slave trade. And that's why I'm saying it's becoming part, I mean, nationally, it's becoming part of the conversation. And so the civil rights movement was not a thing, and now it's become part of the conversation. Yeah. I was talking about it from a southern perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Where, I'm speaking of yeah, where, what you'd see in the news. Yeah. Where people here feel like they want to go back to their heritage. Exactly. South, yes. Which included slavery, but yeah. afterthought. Like the narrative about the Civil War is that it's against slavery. But what was the point of the Civil War? It's all right, these people have succeeded. We have to bring them back. If we if we outlaw slavery, then we crush their economy. Right? But we try to frame it as a humanitarian move. Yes. I'm saying more recently, in terms of the mainstream <laughs> American narrative. And the key point, I'd say, when the civil rights movement got included was when we had Dr. King Day, Martin Luther King Day, and now the monument for, for Dr. King. Right? Prior to that, it was something that was taught sparingly. It was there. It's definitely part of American history. I'm saying not as much part of the American narrative. The American narrative is a white narrative. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I don't know. You live longer than me, so I yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and another way to think about this is just like, um, what do we see, what is presented in popular culture? Um, with the election of President Obama, you know, some of these things also changed a bit. But if you ask a 10-year-old right now, and this is now getting to the point about ideals, ask a 10-year-old who has no memory of a president uh, until now Trump, except for Obama, and ask them what does an American look like, what are they going to say? 100% of the time, I've always had the same answer. Somebody white. Even though the president of the United States, for their whole conscious lives, is black American. Right. Every single time I ask this question, from the period of, in the period of his presidency, kids always said somebody white. No one has ever said anything other than somebody white. Or they'll say blonde hair, blue eyes. Okay. Because built into America, not necessarily written anywhere, being an ideological state are also ideals. Okay. And the ideal is the alpha male. Okay. White of European descent, and used to be Protestant, but now it's more general Christian, but it might be pushing back to be Protestant again. Okay. Which means what? That this is built in, anybody here in marketing? Okay. You're in marketing? Okay, okay. So built in, in terms of figuring out how to market to people, the default is still the white male, that everything else gets part of diversity. Okay. And, and so the point being that in the way, like I was saying, American life is traumatic. Okay? And part of it is that if you do not fill this ideal, then you're conditioned to think there's something wrong with you, that you're the one who is flawed. So if you're not a male, okay, very commonly American society in terms of marketing, in terms of packaging, in terms of clothing, all these things, is saying there's something wrong with you. If you're not white, likewise. Okay. 
But why am I saying this? This feeds into the issues of esteem problems in Muslims who are growing up here. Okay. You know, we would like to say that our standard is the Prophet His generation is the best of generations. And in terms of lip service, you know, many Muslims will say that. But how many people actually internalize it in their hearts? That's a different issue. Yeah. And this is also unconsciously in the mind of so many Muslim college students. Okay. And connect this to a recurring theme when we asked, you know, are you American? Are you, are, you, um, are you Westerner? In the consciousness of many Muslims, not as much in the indigenous Muslims, in the consciousness of many Muslims is a sense of being in exile. Okay. Like so many were saying, okay, I'm not really of this world, I'm not of that world, but I'm of that world less. Right. It's a consciousness of exile. Uh, so, so Sherman Jackson in his book, Islam and the Black American, one of the very important points he makes about the rise of the nation of Islam is that one of the reasons that the nation of Islam succeeded in growing as quickly as it did is that it didn't require black Americans to leave their identity. Okay. It was very consistent. But what happens in a lot of the practice of Islam in America, you have to leave your identity and become this part of this other mold. And you see this with many black American Muslims who didn't come either through the Nation of Islam or through Imam WD is something, a similar experience, right? That you're part of an exiled group. Yes? Um, I have a question. Do you think for a lot of immigrant children whose parents have been, you know, raised in this, like, post-colonial ideology, like, mindset where, you know, like, white skin, light eyes, yeah. light hair, this whole idea of being white mm -hmm. has also played into, like, has made it worse. Uh, absolutely. Because I feel like that affects us a lot. Mm -hmm. Because just, like, from the moment, like, you're even, like, born, that is, like, yeah. built into you since mm -hmm. you're little. When they say you have color in the subcontinent, what does that mean? It means you're light skin, right? Here, if we're saying you have color, it means you're dark skin, right? There, it means you're light skin. And that is social hierarchy, right? That the lighter skin you have, the more marketable you are in terms of marriage. I mean, look at that section of matrimonials, especially the ones that are done by parents. You know, U.S. citizen, fair skin, looking for medical, whatever, right? I mean, so that becomes, that's, uh, it, these are things that get internalized, right? Even patriarchy, when we speak about patriarchy, uh, it's something that gets internalized that everybody enforces, right, without realizing it. Um, this was a technique in terms of, of the period of, of the plantations where, where, how do you put this, that the enslavement was being further internalized within the population. So there's a line, this is one of, one, one of my students himself is black American, he was saying to me that you know you're enslaved when you go to the back of the bus without being asked to do so, right? And, and so this gets internalized and manifests, and people don't even realize it, in all kinds of different ways. Right? And yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's different in, in Dallas, but in Chicago, I mean, it's kind of a, a subtle running joke that, all right, if a, Muslim come, if a woman comes to the Muslim, take shahada, takbir, takbir, right? If, uh, if a woman or a man is Latino, Latina, takbir, takbir. Uh, black American, takbir, takbir. White, long line to hug that person as though 
something has gotten legitimized uh, uh, about us. Right. And yeah, it's an internalized inferiority complex. Okay. And this is what the young people are, are inheriting. Okay. And why wouldn't they? Look at Bollywood. You know, a point I often have to make to you know, people who are familiar with Aishwarya Rai, you know, this actress. In terms of skin color, she's actually closer to me. Okay. But you know, I don't know how many gallons of, of fair, and, fair and lovely she wears, right? That she looks more beautiful because her skin is lighter, right? And that's totally, I mean, this is the conditioning over and over again. Even in Hollywood films, when we're speaking about the default being the, the male, there, are you familiar with the Bechdel test? Have you ever heard of this? Yes. What's the Bechdel test? Uh, is there a movie? It's a thing about movies, and it's basically three questions. Is there a woman in the movie? Mm -hmm. Does she talk to another woman? something other than men. Yeah, exactly. And almost every Hollywood movie fails this. Almost every TV show fails this, right? And you don't even notice it, right? That men are the default of just about every film you'll ever see uh, published, uh, made in America, okay? And, and like you are saying, the third question, are these two women ever talking to each other about something other than men, okay? And so this is how you ingest all this, this is how you internalize everything. So we're also saying, on the one hand, there's this lack of heroes and the fact that America is always at war. And then on top of that, there is this internalized sense of inferiority. And then on top of that, think of the sentiment that a 20-year-old has about their own Muslim community as played out in terms of how we see our masjids. Okay. So our masjids often have beautiful, expensive facade. Okay. Inside, nasty and messy. Bathroom, nastiest place on the planet, right? I mean, the only thing dirtier is probably like the, the restroom in an airplane, you know, or a gas station. Okay. And I mean, so you can get a sense of the, the iman of a community by looking at its masjid, looking at its jummah, looking at its prayers. And on the outside, often they're beautiful and majestic. Inside, not taken care of very well. Um, and then further, you know, what is the condition of the restrooms? Even though we preach over and over again, you know, cleanliness is half Iman. I'm saying the 20-year-old is growing up digesting the teaching that this is Islam. And that the people that are embodying Islam for them are like this. Okay? Especially if you don't have big heroes to look at, okay? except from history. So what I'm saying is, why wouldn't a college student have faith issues? Part of it is, I'm saying, dysfunction in families. And part of it, I'm saying, what is the Islam that we're giving to them? But the biggest point I'm suggesting is that Dean should help you navigate life. So I'll give you another example. Um, this kid was not originally a student of mine, but eventually he came to me. <coughs> Uh, became a hardcore atheist. Uh, I don't know, I don't think he is now. Uh, but the point he was making to me is that I, he says, I went to full-time Islamic school. Okay. And did everything properly, aced in his classes and everything, was probably one of the better students. Um, went to undergrad, he's in med school now at that time. And he says, when I needed Islam, it failed me. And when did he need it? When his brother died in a car accident. And he had no tools on how to deal with it, and nobody in the community to help him deal with it. 
right? That was one of the points we made about Dean. It should give you community. And, and so his way to cope was atheism. The first time I experienced this was some 20 years ago. And it's actually funny. It was with Noman. This is long before Noman was a superstar. And, and so we were all at this conference on the East Coast in, in New Jersey. And, and I wanted to go listen to all these speakers and such. And there's this, this Daisy guy walking around who was getting to debates with everyone about free will and predestination. And of course, none of the uncles wanted to talk to him. Like, what are you talking? Right? It was not right. Then he got to Noman, and Noman at that time was like, "I don't participate in these discussions." And so he sent it to me. Okay. And so then I'm listening to him, and he's just talking at full speed with these aggressive, aggressive points. You know, how can you have, you know, God who knows all, controls all, and then free will, and then how is that fair on the day of judgment, so forth and so on. Right. And I'm listening to him and. I didn't even know where to go from there, and I'm just listening and listening. And sometimes when he made a point that was like logically unsound, I'd push back and such. And I missed that whole evening of lectures, listening to him. Okay. And then he breaks down, and he says, breaks down, and he starts crying. He says, okay, the real issue is that my brother died in a car accident six months ago, and I don't know how to cope with it. And the experience that I've had 100% of the time since then is that Muslims who've wanted to convert into atheism or who've converted into atheism or who converted into another religion, including Christianity, we also have that up in Chicago, okay. uh, not including agnosticism, uh, the issue has never been academic arguments. They almost always start with academic arguments. Free will versus predestination. How can you have a good God and evil in the world? So forth and so on. But the issue has never really been an academic argument for atheism. 100% of the time, the issue has been a scarred heart. And so sometimes it's a broken heart from tragedy. And their only way to make sense of this is, God, how could you let this happen to me? And so they would lash back. And the only way to lash back at Allah is to say Allah doesn't exist. More often, it's resent. So the scarred heart is coming from resent. And usually, it's resent against their parents. And most often, it's resent against their fathers. Now, tie this in with the point we just made a moment ago about media that you never see, you rarely see, popular, positive father figures in media. One of my favorite movies is Finding Nemo, and there the father is traveling across the world to save his kid, but he also has his own, you know, neurotic personality, right? Another nice movie is The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. There you have a father, but then they vilify the mother, right? Yes? What about Mufasa? Mufasa. Yeah, Mufasa is a father figure, except... He's dead, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Sometimes students at school call me Mufasa. Like one, I'm Uncle Phil. The other is Professor Mufasa. Yeah. And I'm like, he's dead, man. You know. Yeah. So, but yeah, but yeah, he is a positive father figure. But yeah, he's a ghost for for much of the film. He's like Simba comes in the sky. Yeah. yeah. So, so. 
I'm saying in that in my experience, 100% of the time, the person who's converting to atheism is a scarred heart, and the vast majority of times, it's resent against their fathers. And too often, the father is a tyrant. But very often, the parents, and especially the father, are emotionally absent. Meaning they're present. Just about every parent I've ever met, especially every Muslim parent, but just about every parent, but every Muslim parent will bend over backwards to give their child anything. Sometimes they just don't know how because they have their own issues. But what is often never given in many of these Muslim households is nurturing, emotional nurturing. You saw this much, uh, back to the point about black American communities, you saw it more, uh, in my experience, in older black American communities. But in contemporary black American Muslim communities, still seeing the same thing. And, and a point I often have to make in, let me, we had Loyola graduation this past week, and so we had Juma, and even there, I'm seeing the Juma that, all right, especially to the fathers, you have to tell your child, I love you, I'm proud of you. A lot of times the parents come to me and say, what do I do you know, about my kids? My kids don't listen, this and that. And I'll ask them, well, how many times do you tell your child I love you? And they'll say, they know I love them. Yeah, all the kids do, but they have to hear it. And so I'm saying the parents are often emotionally absent, especially the fathers. And yet they will purchase everything that they need to, all the tutors, all the gadgets to help the child, but will not give that emotional nurturing. And so what I'm saying, Dean should be guiding you on how to make it through life, but the primary source of learning of that should be coming from your folks. Okay. Secondarily, it should be coming from the community. But what's happened in Islam in America is we're taking on the Christian model. Islam in America, or Islam historically, much of it was by way of community or networks. Okay whether we call them tariqas, jama'as, whatever they may be. They were networks. Okay. But American Christianity, the center point is the church, okay. and all the activities are related to the church. And that's what we're doing with our masjids. You build the giant masjid, and then add all the features around it. Okay. With one administration trying to run the whole thing, and often they're a part-time administration, barely enough time to do that, and people will donate tons of money but, you know, you don't have too many young people. I heard, mashallah, like the Irving Masjid has like 400 people for Isha. That's amazing, mashallah. I don't know what percentage of that is the, uh, of the community is that. Anybody know? I mean, it's, it's a pretty big community. It's very large areas. Okay. Really okay. But um, still, that's, quite, that's, that's pretty amazing. But then I raised the question, how many of those people are under 30 or under 40? And then the number gets uh, very close to zero. I mean, correct me. I, yeah. I, I go there. I think a solid... 20%. Yeah. Nice, Marshall. Okay. Yeah. And they're the exception. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, uh, there's one muscle in Chicago that has that set up. Uh, actually, two, but one specifically. This is Bridgeview. That when it was formed, it was an empty area, and then a neighborhood was built around it. And then as more and more Muslims started moving to that area, then everybody, all the non-Muslims started you know, moving out. And then now it's, there's like, you know, here's the Palestinian street, here's the Libyan street, here's the Yemeni street, and so on and so on. Yeah. Uh, Bridgeview Moss Foundation. Yeah. But so the point that I'm making <coughs> is that 
what have we done or what are we doing or why do we have this Christian model? Yes. I want to ask, so you Yeah. So I'm saying now uh, the burden is being put on the masjid. Okay. Versus before it was on people. So it's in the population of the people. Yeah. Now part of it is because, except for a few of these places, we have a whole neighborhood of Muslims that uh, we're all very isolated from each other. Right. Uh, but what I'm suggesting deeper than that is many of our masjids are not so much houses of worship. I mean, they are, and don't misunderstand my point, but they're identity preservation centers. The goal is to preserve. Sorry? I'm saying it's better than zero. Meaning the, the, the point of the masjid, the point of the administration of the masjid should be to fill out the roles for prayer. That all the different numbers that we have to count how many Muslims there are, uh, I'm suggesting, and this is purely me, the real measurement is how many people show up for Fajr, how many people show up for Isha, how many people show up for Jummah, those things. That's the real measurement. Right. Uh, in contrast to how many people there are in the world, how many Muslims, self-identifying Muslims there are. Yeah. But that's, that's purely my opinion. Right. Uh, my jaded decades of Chicago opinion. So. But what am I saying that is that when you have a young person who's a product of this, then they're being taught that Islam is your identity primarily. Okay? And identity, and it is, Islam is part of your identity. It's part of all of our identities. But then there's extra focus on your appearance. Okay? And in terms of gender in our society, when you hear, when you follow news stories about American politicians, if it's a male politician, he did such and such. If it's a female politician, usually at some point they'll talk about what she wore. Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Sarah Palin, at some point you're going to hear about their appearance, which you will not hear about the male. And then that gets internalized also in terms of our, our community, so it becomes this nexus of identity, of appearance, okay, focused more on the women. And thus, if you have hijab, you are a Muslim. If you don't have a job, then there's something wrong with you as a Muslim. All right? And that's a current symbol of diversity. Right? This is how we show diversity. Look, we have a woman covering her hair. We're diverse. Before it was someone uh, Latino, Latina. Before that it was someone in a wheelchair. Before it was someone black American. Before it was probably a white woman. Yeah, right. And that's, and all of this, it relates to the idea of ideals. Right. And again, what am I saying? That a person who's growing up, a Muslim who's growing up, is internalizing all this without even realizing it. Any questions so far? Yes. So, so what, uh, what benefit does diversity serve like the wasps? They just pat themselves on the back? Well, <clears throat> where does diversity take place? Diversity takes place in the facade, right? Yeah. And diversity takes place at most in middle management. Okay. The vast majority of CEOs are still white males. Uh, and I'd even suggest the presidency is in part a facade, right? The president has tremendous power, but is also representative of an image. Okay. And, but in terms of the actual movers and shakers, they're still white males, right? 
I think we even overestimate the power of the Jews in America, too. Right? There are a significant number of, of Jews who are in positions of leadership in America. Okay? And there's still a consciousness that there's something different about us uh, compared to the wasps. So, what do you think? I think, especially in our Muslim community, we overestimate the power of the Jews, right? I mean, Hollywood is Jewish the way Bollywood is Muslim, right? So you have all kinds of power brokers in Bollywood that are Muslims, right? But nobody will say that the Muslims run uh, India. And I'd say a stereotype is that the Jews are in control of everything. Um, I think that's a gross overestimation. So, yes? Going back to that adversity. Yeah. Why should we internalize a feeling of guilt for being different? I wouldn't call it guilt, I'd call it inferiority. Or inferiority yeah. or shame or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm a little more brown, I'm a little mm-hmm. different in some way. Mm-hmm. Why should I mm-hmm. feel bad about it mm-hmm. if someone else in front of me makes a big deal out of it. Okay. What are your thoughts? Or why should I even add why would I? Right. Um, why? Why would someone, um, let's say I'm growing up as this Muslim kid in some place in America, some random place in America, why would or should I have an inferiority complex about it? Yes? I mean, if humans like model when they're learning and they need examples in order to develop, mm-hmm. I why think would is something of more of a like developmental. Okay, so you are saying it's a different question. Why should? I'm saying why should. Yeah, I'm saying they I'm should saying not. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Basically, once you come to that conclusion, consciously, mm-hmm. you have no justification to feel ashamed. Should not correct, and but does it happen? Yes. Overwhelmingly, yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, what are some of the other issues? So, like at Loyola, uh, uh, for the Muslim men, Muslim women, we have an annual retreat. Right, that Loyola has this like retreat campus also. And so the MSA men have one, MSA women have one. And at one of our MSA women's retreat, uh, uh, some of the girls started crying. And literally they said, this is the first time we've ever heard a Muslim woman speaker. And what you're seeing in terms of mainstream society is giving you a sense of what your opportunity is. So one of the greatest things of Obama's presidency, I don't know that he was all that different than his predecessors. Some things he was great, some things, eh, foreign policy is the same. But uh, his existence has taught many young black Americans that you can be president, which in theory means everything in between there too. and, and so if you don't see something like you, it becomes very often an internalized limitation. Like when you speak about the glass ceiling, uh, even in terms of women in, in terms of professional advancement. If you don't see yourself, then more often than not, you see that as something you're not allowed to be. So do you think it will have an effect for the next 10 to 20, 30 years Obama's presidency will have that? Uh, I think a lot of that also uh, runs in contrast to institutionalized racism in our society. And again, I'm biased because I'm coming from Chicago, right? Uh, I will say that one of Obama's models was Mayor Harold Washington, who was the mayor in the 1980s. 
And prior to him, it was next to impossible to get a city job if you weren't connected, and usually it had to be in your Irish Catholic white. And then with his election, now a whole bunch of jobs opened for, for black Americans, right? The problem is that the system also crushes, you know, the black American family, perhaps more than everything else, right? So I'm saying at least it's creating hope in a way that wasn't there before. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's a whole conversation on its own related to the history of the civil rights movement and such. Yeah. But so bringing this back then to, to ideals and what a young Muslim internalizes, another thing that gets internalized uh, related to what I'm saying about the masjid is a culture of mediocrity. That, again, maybe Dallas is different. Maybe other parts of the country are different. My primary frame of reference is Islam in Chicago. Uh, the vast majority of our Islamic organizations are run in a culture of mediocrity, okay, as opposed to a culture of excellence. Right? The prophet says, peace be upon it, I did not come except to perfect character, as well as everything a believer involves himself with, um, he does to perfection or does for excellence, towards excellence. Right? I don't believe that we have that as uh, our Islamic organization culture, generally speaking. More is focused on mediocrity. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, in the case of Chicago, the vast majority of boards that run the vast majority of masjids are part-time boards. I mean, they're professionals in their own field. And they have families, so they have full-time lives. And then they're also putting in time for the masjid. So it's kind of like the scraps of their time, even though they might always be thinking about, about, about Islam and the masjid. And then you might have 20 people trying to do the work of 300 people. So what gets addressed? The most urgent matters. And it's a lot easier to get funding for a building than it is to get funding for maintenance. But all that is essentially the same point, culture of mediocrity. And that is what a young person is being taught, not openly, and being taught with action. This also includes mediocrity in terms of morality. So when I went to college, the Muslim kids who did drugs or the Muslim kids who dated were the exceptions, um, especially in terms of people who are active in the MSA. Now I'm saying uh, that is not yet the norm, but it's very close to being the norm. Especially in terms of, uh, especially marijuana. And boyfriend, girlfriend, the whole nine yards. So I'm saying that is much more the norm. Okay. And some of it, I'm saying, is that we're not giving as much of a focus on integrity of character. Okay. It's one thing to say, okay, those things are haram. It's another thing to say, behave according to your worth, according to your dignity. That's a different lesson that some of these things are beneath your dignity. Because what else is there? Every eating disorder is also present. That very often, uh, uh, more so, I mean, both men and women have the eating disorders, but more often in my experience it's been the women. I will have to keep some sort of a brownie or a snack in my office when a student comes in and I'll offer it to see if the student takes it or how they respond. Okay. Like if they say I've eaten, then I'm usually fine. Uh, if they say no thanks, then I'll still try to push them like a Daisy uncle and until they hear what they have to say. And if they keep saying no, I'm fine, no, I'm fine, 
then that becomes a red flag in my mind. I'll give you an example. A student comes to me and says, <clears throat> uh, what do I do about fasting? I can't fast. It's too hard for me. So I say, well, what if you do suhoor? What if you do seri? And then this one particular student says, yeah, I can do that, but... I'm thinking, why is she answering this way? And I said, well, what if you eat a sandwich? And she's like hesitant. And she says, and I asked, well, why, why not a sandwich for, for suhoor? And she says, well, it's these two pieces of bread. And then I, that triggers something in my mind, and I ask her, uh, how many calories do you get a day? And so she says, on a given day, 600. Okay, how many calories do you need? 2,000, give or take. Yeah. If you're an MSA boy, it seems like you need like 5,000. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I asked her, how many do you get on a good day? Zero. Okay. Meaning 600 are her bad days. And I'm saying that's also present. Cutting is also very common. So students are not speaking about suicide ideation. There's plenty of students who are also doing things of self-harm. Okay. And again, I'm saying, why wouldn't they? They are being fed the same media that everyone else is. And like everyone else, they're not being given the tools to navigate. Like they're being given this culture of mediocrity where Islam is good for the scraps of your time and your effort. Okay. And, and, you know, Islam is a burden upon you, as opposed to something that benefits you, makes your life better, makes your life brighter. Okay. So that's, those are also other issues. And so very often, I will have students coming to my office with relationship problems. Uh, often, it's the secret girlfriend. Okay. And... Goofy story. So at the end of last school year, 2015-16, it was a whole string of secret girlfriends, some of whom were Muslim, some of whom were not. Okay. Muslim boy, Hafiz, whole nine yards, right? You know, I keep saying whole nine yards. But, you know, super pious, mashallah, mashallah, all that stuff, right? Doesn't miss a single rakat of tarabi. And, and so then I gave this khutbah that Friday, talking about all these things that were, all these shady practices that we have whether it's all these people smoking weed, uh, people drinking, and then all these secret girlfriends. And I'm just railing against it because sometimes that's what I do. And <laughs> then after this Juma, one of the kids who was there at Juma goes to his friend and says, Muzaffar, his chutbah was about you. <laughs> okay? Now, why is that actually funny? Okay, because the guy he was talking to, we're just going to call him Frank. Okay? Um, Frank had a secret girlfriend. We'll say Joe is the guy who talked to him. Joe also had a secret girlfriend. <laughs> Joe didn't think that I could be talking to him. Right. And what else am I touching on there? In addition to this problem of, of moral mediocrity and mediocrity in terms of our efforts, is this sense that, okay, I'm not the one with the problem. Good. And this is getting to another one of my big points that I'm suggesting to you a lot of times when we do Islam, when we think of Islam, it's in our imagination. As opposed to looking at what is happening in the ground in front of me. So what would you tell this non-Muslim girl who says, all right, I'm dating this Muslim guy, okay, 
and all of his friends that he plays basketball with are all dating non-Muslim women. What should I do? What would you tell him? So there's the Islam in our imagination. We say, okay, you're not supposed to do this. Okay. But that's not going to be an answer that's going to work. Because one person out of 100 would say, oh, really? Okay. Everyone else already knows they're not supposed to be doing this. So what would you tell that person? Any thoughts? Find new friends. Sorry? Okay, which is a nice idea that I would agree with has an idea, but who's going to do that, right? So, you know, I'd ask her, okay, has he told his parents? No way, he's not going to tell his parents. Then I'd say he's just using you. That often these guys are even telling, like all these girls know the word haram. Because the guy's telling this relationship we have is haram. I'm not supposed to do it, but then they persist. And my parents can't know. And then I'd say, all right, if he's telling you it's forbidden and he's not making other steps forward, then he's just using you for, for whatever it is he's getting out of you. But the problem is that that's not enough to get a lot of these girls to leave them. And so getting into the core of what we're talking about in chaplaincy, I said that Dean should help you navigate life. Okay. And in chaplaincy, I said that the goal is that when they come into the office and leave, they should be in better shape when they leave. Okay? Which you would like to tell someone, this is haram, don't do it, and they stop, but that's not going to happen. Once out of 100 cases, it'll work. Okay? Because everybody already knows what they're not supposed to do. They may not appreciate the magnitude of it, okay. but they know. But the challenge is to figure out how to help them navigate out of it. So usually what I do with almost everyone, well, let me put it this way. When someone enters to the office, what I'm doing right from the start is I'm triaging, figuring out what is the need. And usually the need is either something personal, okay, something religious, okay, uh, something academic. Okay. If it's academic, on my academic side, maybe I can help them. Like, you know, how do you talk to this teacher? Uh, or I might have to refer them to like a dean or something or an advisor. If it's religious, then 99 out of 100 times I can address it. Sometimes I have to contact someone. So over the years, I've contacted Mufti Kamani, I've contacted Sheikh Abdul Nasser, contacted other people, so my own teachers. Mufti Kamani is one of my teachers. Um, you know, how would you answer such and such question? Okay. Uh, but usually I can address those. If it's personal, then it's further triaging. Is this something that I can address with life experience? Because I'm twice as old as, as these students, at least. Okay. Or can I get them to someone at the wellness center, the professional therapists? Okay. For 20-year-olds, mental health is not as big of a stigma as it is for older crowds. Because for older crowds, uh, you know, especially in our various Muslim communities, whether we speak of Desis, Arabs, Black Americans, not as much in my experience with Bosnians. Um, uh, the sentiment is that if you have a mental health problem, that means you're crazy, right? And you're always going to be crazy. Okay? And it's on your record forever and, and all those things. Raise your hand. No, okay. Uh, the younger students don't seem to have as much of an, a stigma about it. Okay. But still, I'd estimate maybe about 50% of the people that I refer to the Wallen Center actually go. Okay. 
the girl who had this, uh, this eating disorder, you know, I asked her, uh, can I get you to go to the wellness center? She's like, yeah, sure. And I knew she wasn't going to go. Right? Sometimes I'll offer to go with them. But another way to frame this is that for many people, it's already a big, huge step for them just to come to me. And most people on campus already have a level of comfort with me. But still, there's this intimidation factor. People who know me, they laugh. But people who don't know, they're like, you know, look at Musafir. He's this giant man physically. And what is he going to say about me? What is he going to judge? Right? So there's that intimidation factor. But it's even higher to go to the wellness center, especially to a non-Muslim. Non-Muslims aren't going to understand me. Often I have to do cultural competency training for, for the people in our wellness center. Or they'll call me up. You know, here's what um, a client is saying. And then, you know, can you explain this to me? Right? So in those cases, maybe about 50% of the people go. But what I'm also saying is that someone can only get help if they want to get it. You can tell someone 100 times to go see Muzaffar. It's not going to happen until they go on their own. Sometimes they can get dragged in. Um, but that's even less successful going to a professional therapist. So. But I am saying uh, that mental health is a very, very serious thing. That a lot of times these young people are told, okay, your problem is you're not praying enough. Pray, and this depression repression is going to go away. <laughs> right? You know. uh, and that's destructive advice. Okay. Yeah, if you have the level of Iman where prayer is going to uh, benefit you, then yeah. Most people don't have the level of Iman. Just like I was saying before, that okay, for me, for whatever it's worth, focusing on prayers as my vacation from life has resulted in a mashallah increase of energy. That's not going to be the case for most people. So even in talking about religious service, religious training, uh, you know, I made the point that you have these four tests, right? Anybody remember them without looking at your notes? Obedience, struggle, ease. Difficult questions, yeah. So we often say that, uh, you know, life is a test. And like I said, we don't ever say how to pass it. But a point that is hard for people to digest is that, you know, so I made the point that, okay, in terms of dealing with struggle, Muslims and Christians tend to do better than everybody else. Okay. That from a dunya perspective, what deen should do is make your life easier mentally. Whether we speak about just appreciating that there is something bigger, okay, or whether we speak about the fact that justice is going to be served, okay. whether we talk about you know, what's happening with the tyrant in Syria, or whether we're talking about other places in the world, justice is going to be served. Okay. That, from a secular perspective, if I believe that, there, that someone cannot escape justice, what does that do to my consciousness? Makes you, Makes you more content, right? Gives me some relief. Okay. It also gives me a higher sense of my own accountability. And so I'm saying, if you just imagine for a moment that Islam, everything's made up. Okay. We're saying that what you're being hit with is by design. Okay. It's not, you're not being hit with struggle to destroy you. You're being hit with struggle to purify you to make you stronger, to make you more pure, to make you more clear. Because some of the students that I have, part of the difficulties they have, like I talked about, you know, the problems they've been having with the presidential cycle and everything, 
because they've been raised, mashal, for them in privilege, and they've never really experienced struggle. And so now their earth is shattering. Those are my students who've gone through struggle. They're not having as much of a problem. Right? My Palestinian students, my black American students say, you know, nothing's changed. You know? yeah. well, what are they going to do that hasn't already happened to us? Right? You like that, huh? Like, yes, mashallah. Okay. Um, uh, but the point is that if you have this, this mindset that, okay, when you're being hit with struggle, it is by design to make you grow. Struggle is not easy. Okay? One of the things I love about Surah Yusuf, actually, let, let me make two points about Surah Yusuf. So you all know Rami, Rami Nashibi, right? Another Chicago superhero, mashallah. He's one of the few that hasn't left Chicago, you know, like Murphy, like Mufti Kamani, and such. And that, like, one of the few we've been able to keep. He was giving this talk recently at Loyola. He was talking about this prisoner, this former incarcerated uh, 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 person he met who was falsely convicted, was in prison for something like 18 years, okay? Falsely convicted, finally released. And Rami was saying when he's looking at this brother, he notices what a big smile this brother has. Okay? And it's one thing that you're finally released, but you, should, you might also be full of just anger, despair, and also just all the PTSD. And this brother is so happy. And Rami asked him, you know, I'm looking at you, and I'm just amazed why you seem so happy with life. How did you make it through prison like this? And then this person said two words, Surah Yusuf. Okay. What is one of the core messages of Surah Yusuf? Right? You're going to be put through anything and everything, even by your own family. But Allah Ta'ala is not abandoning you. And another aspect I love about Surah Yusuf is that Yaqub knew that he was going to be reunited with his son, right? right from the dream. He knew it was going to happen. Yet he still felt so much sadness that he went blind. Okay? And so a lot of times I have to tell students, okay, it's okay to feel your pain. Okay? Almost everybody who comes to my office cries. I've gone through literally about 500 Kleenexes in the past school year. Okay, like four boxes. And what we're also not given in terms of the way we're giving deen to our young people is the chance to be human. When the prophet, peace be upon him, is at the grave of his son, Ibrahim, okay, he's, tears are coming out of his eyes, and the Sahaba ask him, you all know the story, the Sahaba ask him, why are, why are you crying? Your son's going to go straight to paradise. And what did the prophet, peace be upon him, say? He's these tears are rahmah, right? Okay. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, is longing for Khadija, Umm al-Mu'mineen radiallahu anha, right? Long after she's passed away. And when we say to people, all right, all you need to pray and your problems are solved, we're not even allowing the Prophet, peace be upon him, to be human because he felt pain. Okay. The Sahaba felt pain. Okay. Imagine what Ali went through, may Allah be pleased with him, right? His wife dies three, six months after the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then look at everything he witnesses up to the point that he becomes Khalifa, right? Think of all these things that these other companions have witnessed, right? And the sorrow that they experience, right? After the Prophet, peace be upon him, dies, Bilal, he doesn't want to give the Yadhan anymore. Okay? I'm saying another thing we've done is we've removed the humanity from the best of generations, okay? That we need to return into our communities. And this also happens in other ways. When we 
when we get too Puritan, we start removing things saying that they're bidas, they're innovations. So a common issue in Chicago over the last few decades was when someone dies, especially in Desi cultures, you'll have Khatam Quran, right? Quran Khani. Some people come along and say, uh-uh, can't do it, the Prophet never did it, right? Stuff like that. What have they actually done? They removed a <coughs> grieving ritual. Because what happens when you have a Quran Khani, Khatam Quran? Everybody comes over and you're just quiet together. And you're reading Quran and people bring food. And then when you eliminate that, You've taken it away. So not only have we refused to allow ourselves to be human, the, t the techniques that we have in our cultures to help deal with the struggles of life, we've also been weeding away. Okay. And again, the 20-year-olds are the biggest victims of this, because at least those of us who are older still have some of this okay, in some capacity. And so, to make the point further, 15-year-olds, when I look at them, I honestly wonder why they're still Muslim. Because we have given them, by and large, no incentive to be Muslim. What do you think? Agree? Disagree? Or at least food for thought. So, all of you who are coming here studying ilm, the burden of responsibility on you is so much higher. Yes, ma'am. My sister in Bihar. Yeah. I, was, I was thinking like for, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but for the teenagers right now, the ones that are growing up right now, I think like considering when I was growing up, I think there was more, there wasn't as many alternatives for me growing up Very true. than what they have mm -hmm. right now. So I think, uh, oh, did you have more? Yeah. So I'd say, <clears throat> um, so there are definitely more resources for a common teenager or college student uh, to attend in terms of the number of resources. Per capita, I don't think the, the number is that much higher, right? And number two, uh, in terms of availability of knowledge, there's way more knowledge that a common Muslim junior high schooler has than I did. When I was in college, I didn't know what a hijab was, literally, okay, you know. Saw some women cover their hair. Remember back home in Karachi, the, you know, the, the women who were covering their hair were often the you know, lower socioeconomic class than the higher socioeconomic class, but I didn't know what a hijab was. That's the level of knowledge I was at. Uh, the problem, however, is with this huge plethora of opportunities, whether it's YouTube, crash courses, celebrity sheikhs, all that stuff, uh, the young people don't have, have uh, tools on how to navigate through all the knowledge. Yeah. Direction And so like we were talking about the madrasa, you have a tartib, this and this and this and this, with a goal. And what's missing is this, so what happens with a lot of this knowledge, it just becomes consumption. Okay, let me just, you know, take in all these lectures, all these uh, YouTube lectures, audio lectures, crash courses. But if you don't know how to use it, then it's no different than studying the academy. And what often it does, it creates a bigger version of what you are with all of your flaws. Because now you know unwittingly how to use Dean to justify wrong behaviors. Right. And so if it's not being embodied, embodied, it can become a detriment. This is why there's two metaphors that are really cool when you put them head to head in the Quran. One is in Surah Al-Jumma'ah, the donkey carrying books. And the, the other one is Surah Al-Adiyat, Al-Adiyat, right? So what do you have in terms of Al-Adiyat that you guys have probably already done with Shaykh? You probably know it better than I do, but, you know, much love for that. But um, 
Here you have the equivalent of like thoroughbreds, right, who are just running at full speed as fast as the rider wants them to run, okay? Not slowing down. Running so hard is creating sparks in the ground, trail of dust behind them, okay? And then what's the next ayah? But man is ungrateful. And then what do commentaries then say? That, okay, what we should be is like that horse that will go as fast as the rider wants it to. Even if it's into a crowd, the horse will go, okay? But the other option is to be the donkey carrying books. And what's the personality of a donkey? A donkey will just go in whatever direction it wants. And so if I'm just consuming knowledge without transforming me, then I'm literally the donkey carrying books. I'm still taking all the turns and life choices that I want to, okay? Uh, but now I just have more knowledge to do it. See what I'm saying? So I'm saying that uh, what is amazing is how much knowledge there is available. I mean, back when I was younger, among like the big texts, there was very few even in English. Um, now there's so many things just online. But if I'm not trained in how to go through it, I will mess myself up. Okay. Especially like if I just decide I'm going to read Bukhari on my own. Okay, there's assumptions built into Bukhari. What do you think? Make sense? Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot more opportunity for growth, but in the same way, there's a lot, lot more opportunity without guidance and mentoring for going further away. Go. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. So <clears throat> one possible solution would be to have mentorship. Yes, this is exactly what I tell the undergrads they have to do. But keep going. Mentorship not in the sense of like a classroom mentorship. I mean mm -hmm. mentorship yes. in the sense of Life. someone when they're ten. Yes. You stick with them until they're seventeen. Agree hundred percent. Or beyond seventeen, or but beyond yeah. Beyond seventeen, of yeah. course. But like, you know, you separate from them at seventeen or something. Mm -hmm. And you build one, two or three very deep relationships. Yes. Rather than I agree. I agree 100%. This is exactly what I require the undergrads to do. I tell them that your way to pay me back is to pay it forward by being mentors to other people. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, another beauty of our dean is that the followers of the prophet, peace be upon him, were not called disciples. They're called sahaba. Right? That a lot of times I have to tell the MSA itself, the administrators who get really gung-ho, let's bring every lecturer every single week. And that creates this burnout. Like, you know, how many lectures do you really actually need to hear now? Right? You've already heard everything. Um, and I have to tell them, okay, just sohbah is going to be more of a benefit than someone coming in to give you a lecture. Okay? Especially because most of the lectures you've already heard. And you're already used to not practicing what you've already heard. Oh, here's a nice nugget. Here's a nice nugget. It's as though we're all waiting for that secret key yeah. that suddenly everything's going to change. Okay. And no one's going to pierce through that like, yeah. thick hide mm -hmm. that people have. Okay. I mean, this is, this is uh, about two-thirds of the way until Baqarah, where you know, we're being told to enter into the deen kafa completely. And then we're being asked, okay, what is it going to take? You know, do you need a miracle? Well, how many miracles do the children of Israel receive? Okay. Do you need Allah Ta'ala to come on, on a cloud? Well, by then, it's going to be too late then. Right. Meaning, it's surrender. So if you come walking to Allah, he will come to you running, but you have to go walk. Right. And yeah, so 
if you can develop those personal bonds, you will also heal people in advance of, of many illnesses. Yeah. And to really, really make that point, I had some colleagues that were talking to some Jewish leadership. And naturally, the conversation got into Israel-Palestine. That wasn't the, the primary po uh, focus of the conversation. And so the Jewish, this Jewish leader tried to bring it back. And he said, I'm going to tell you something about our community that I know is 100% true and something about your community that uh, I know is 100% true. He said, in our community, if there's any Jewish kid growing up in America, religious or secular, no matter what field they want to go into, we will find someone to mentor them. Okay. And I know for certain your community doesn't have this. Okay. What do you think? It's pretty hardcore and mean. Is it true? And an easy question, how many of you can say you have mentors? I had mentors in my life, you know, mashallah, who were like, you know, guys in their 60s who put in time for me. And some of what I'm doing is literally, you know, I'm a product of, of them. Okay. And this also includes my Sunday school teachers, right? Um, but my point is that the common college student has none of that. Yes? So where would you say, I mean, sure, we can like pay it forward, you know, and be those mentors to other people. But I mean, just talking about the issue, like, where do you think that issue of like not having mentors comes from? Like, are you relating this back to the like breakdown of families or just like media that like you should always develop? So where does the lack of mentors come from? I have a couple theories on this looking at my own generation. And one is, I think, you're conditioned to, to worry about how are you going to pay for college for your kids. So i got to work and work and work and work and work, because college is getting so expensive. Loyola, right now, I think is 50 grand for one year just tuition. Okay. UFC, University of Chicago, Northwestern are each 60 grand plus just tuition, not including room and board. Yeah. Um, uh, when I was in undergrad, UIC, which is the local state school, University of Illinois in Chicago, per year was $3,000. Okay. University of Illinois per year was $3,000, just tuition. Now, University of Illinois, I think, is $25,000. Okay. So two, two aspects of life, the prices have shot up far above wages and inflation. That's housing and, and tuition. And so I think that already takes away a lot of people's attention. Okay. Um, that I got I to gotta, you know, pay for my house. I have to save up for kids' tuition. Uh, I think that knocks out a lot of people. And part of the issue with professional life is that you do have to keep upgrading your skills. Because with every year, there's more people entering the workforce. You know, I used to, before I went into academia, I used to work in IT. And now, 10 years later, I can't tell you anything barely about a computer. I barely can use my iPhone, right? Because, you know, the technology keeps updating. Uh, but on top of that, I doubt I could very easily get a job because I'll be competing with, you know, someone who's coming straight out of college. So that, I think, is part of American society, knocks a lot of people away. And then there's also the rat race. So it's not just, okay, I want to have a house. I want to have a house in that neighborhood, right? This is another point that Dr. Jackson makes in that same book, Islam the Black American, that what should have happened is that you had a lot of people from South Asia and the Arab world come to America. There should have been a common bond with black Americans, both against white supremacy, one from the legacy of slavery and the other from the legacy of colonization. But instead, he's arguing what happened with many of the transnationals is the desire to be embraced by white supremacy, right? Meaning the vast majority of, of Muslim immigrants 
to America that I've met who are not refugees okay, have come here to cash in. Okay, I'm saying very few came in for the purposes of Dean. And if I was in their situation, I probably would have made the same choice too. Right? So I'm also, when I'm saying these things about what we're giving to the young people, I'm not saying it as blame to any particular population. I'm saying a lot of this, we're part of this legacy. But I think it's a combination of just, okay, American life is all about work, 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 work. And then on top of that, you know, work in so you can live in the, you know, the neighborhood with, you know, all the luxuries and everything. But then I also push back with my friends saying, you guys still have enough time for football. Right? All you do is bring in people and at least watch football with them. You got a follow-up? I mean, a promise I made to myself, I don't know why. No, let's take a step back. When I was an undergrad, uh, uh, an issue I wrestled with, I mean, I was raised, my family's religious. My father was one of the first presidents of our masjid. My mother was super active in our, in our masjid. She was probably, you know, one of the most outspoken of all the women. I thought that was the norm. Yeah. And uh, so I'm saying I came from, you know, my devout family. My father, he's been praying in the masjid all five for at least 30 years. Okay. Um, he's retired now. Both my parents are retired. And both my parents worked full-time for most of my life. Um, but when I was in college, I went through this personal dilemma, almost crisis, thinking there has to be more to life than this. More to life than, okay, you go to college, you get married, uh, you go to college, you get a good job to get married, to have children, to raise them, to go to college, to get married, to get a good job, to raise children. There has to be something more than this cycle, right? And then it's even more strange with the women in our community who are being made to go to college and then take out a loan for med school and then not practice except to pay off your loan. So it's basically like we're sending many of our women so they can take a loan to pay off the med school, right? So they can become doctors to pay off their med school loan. Um, and so I kept thinking that there has to be more to life than this. And the answer to that, even though my Sunday school teachers used to all give it to me, the answer to that came when I went through the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? Yeah, that there was more to life than this. And somewhere in there, and I'm not saying this is something you should do, this is just something that I did, was I made a promise to myself that my career will be at my service. I'm not going to be at the service to my career. Okay. It sounds more noble than it is. It might actually be lazy, but the point being that, all right, I'm not going to miss Juma for work, okay? even if it means I have to miss important meetings, which then did, in my corporate life, cause me promotions. I'm like, I'm not going to miss work. I'm not going to miss Juma. Okay. And then also, I, part of the reason I went into the academic study of Islam, as well as other traditional study, is that me growing up, nobody could answer my questions. But I knew that there were answers. Because I always knew that Islam was smarter than me. Part of this low self-esteem that young people have about Dean is that they don't realize that they also think that the author of the Quran is not that smart. And no one says it. But that's what they actually believe. No one says it to themselves either. And for whatever reason, I always had conviction that the author of the Quran is smarter than I am, which gave me permission to explore it any way I want. And like I said before, Islam's not going to break. And speaking objectively, so I've studied philosophies across different traditions, studied religions across the board. I would say objectively that when you go through the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, I will say objectively, he is, uh, if not the smartest people I've ever read, then one of them, right? And I've read a lot of people that I consider to be very smart. I think Aristotle is one of the smartest people ever. I think Max Weber, the sociologist, is one of the smartest people ever. Um, 
And then when you look at the people in our tradition. So one of the things I got from the academic orientalist study of Islam was we went through a course on biographical dictionaries, Asma'ul Rijal. So these are the, the dictionaries of all the people in the Isnads, right? And I would get amazed by people like Ibn Hajar. How did one dude write a full set of biographical dictionaries, and then on top of that, write a critique of his own, and on top of that, write Fatal Badi, complete commentary on Bukhari. How does one person do that? So I'm saying these, these European thinkers, who mashallah are also very smart for that one, I don't know if mashallah is the right word, but for the benefit I got, I'm saying they don't hold a candle to people like Ibn Hajar, to Al-Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, right? And none of those people hold a candle to the Prophet, peace be upon him. I'm saying this objectively. Aside from bias, just looking at the way the Prophet, peace be upon him, is able to make super profound points in three sentences. I'm saying having given thousands of talks, I do not have that ability. Right? And I think, related to your question of why should someone, I think if someone even appreciated that the authors of these books are smarter than them, that can also wipe away a lot of esteem issues. And they also then use their full intellectual capacity to challenge it, knowing it's not going to break. Right? Um, for whatever reason, as I try to figure out, okay, why is it that me comparing myself uh, with all the kids that I went to Sunday school with, you know, how come I went in this direction, they kind of went in directions that seem to be, at least right now, not as close to Dean, but may Allah except all of us. Um, I mean, uh, some of it is my folks, some of it is my mentors, and some of it is whoever planted the idea in my mind that these works are the works of people that are smarter than me, a prophet that is smarter than me, peace be upon him, and of course a creator who's smarter than me. That, I think, automatically creates a certain type of confidence. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes? I'm curious, like, looking at this kind of big picture, yeah. there's so many different, like, entangled issues, one after yeah. another. Like, how did you kind of develop, like, a process of, like, okay, versus at this stage, that's kind of stuff? 20 years of, of exploration and study, literally, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now, if we have the same conversation, I'd be saying different things. Yeah, hopefully better things, inshallah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of community work, I've been doing community work for about 20 years, at least. You know, uh, every level and part of the Chicago Muslim community, central leadership, working with converts, MSA, whole nine yards. Um, I keep saying whole nine yards more and more, I've noticed. <laughs> and um, and so a lot of it is just life experience. that just over the years, just trying to put it all together and make sense of it for myself and finding some of it to be benefit of other people. And a lot of it is, you know, definitely a lot of really good uh, teachers and mentors in the process too, you know, for whom I am very grateful. Yes? So um, how do you, you know, we as students going forward and uh, when other people ask this question, how do we uh, find mentors for ourselves? Because like you're saying, there's a limited pool and there are mm -hmm. Well, you guys have Sheikh, who I'll say behind his back, although he may be hearing the recording. So Sheikh, cover your ears for a moment. Um, uh, I'll say, uh, because I know the vast majority of celebrity scholars, celebrity activists, I haven't talked too much about the activist thing, we can also touch that. Uh, of his age group, he's one of my favorites across the country. I mean, you have a, uh, a gold mine or a gem of him um, uh, right before you. Mufti Kamani is another one of my favorites, right? Uh, and I'm saying this 
as part of, a, of a, an appreciation of their education. Uh, a big part of it is their own disposition and personality. And related to that is, you know, when they're speaking, I know they're speaking to people in this world. A lot of people don't live in this world. They live in their imagination of Islam, which is not useful for the person who's struggling in front of them. Uh, but I'm saying uh, I'm obliging all of you to be mentors of people who are younger. And you have the primary qualification, which is life experience. Meaning, much of what I'm actually offering these young people is that I've already been through what they've been through. Okay. And, and so I'm meeting them, you know, trying to figure out where they are in terms of the dean, in terms of life, maturity, struggle, everything and then addressing them according to their language. Okay. But if I was 15 years younger, I'd probably not be able to do much of what I do for these young people. I think I'm giving them benefit. Um, but so what I'm saying is that a lot of times we think I need to have a certain amount of qualifications. Your life experience is the biggest one. Again, that's one of the blessings of suhba, of the sahabas, is companionship. Any other questions about anything? Yes, sir. So you talked about the uh, sort of American Western narrative and the ideal and how people unknowingly internalize yeah. that. Um, how does one oneself um, do away with that sort of narrative Great. and introduce more prophetic and great yeah. generation? So conceptually, <clears throat> you are making the prophet, peace be upon him, and the Sahaba the best of generations as a concept, as a simple concept. Um, as opposed to the forefathers of America. I mean, no one mentions that George Washington died from syphilis. I mean, it's kind of telling, right? Uh, George Washington, when he was president, he was the wealthiest man in America. No one talks about that either, right? You know, it's not a coincidence. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, I think, is one of the great thinkers of the past few hundred years. Um, uh, but he was also a slave master, and the only way to implement his thought was by way of a genocide, right? So. So part of that is to deconstruct the mythology that is in your mind. And, and that includes humanizing the Sahaba, but elevating the Prophet, peace be upon him. That I think what we've also done is gone too far in decreasing the Prophet, peace be upon him, into being just a mailman to deliver the Quran. Meaning you can't separate the Prophet from the Quran itself, peace be upon him. Okay. That is not just his story. It is coming to us, to the Sahaba, from his physical being. It's inseparable from him. On a bookshelf, Hadith and Quran. But in presence, it's seamlessly him. Okay. And so how do I do this? So the, the curriculum that I give to, to students, some pieces of it. Uh, and again, depends on where they're at. Usually some people actually need to start with a gratitude exercise. So... Uh, depending upon the student, I will require them every single day to make a list of five things to be grateful for in their lives. Okay? First, you make the list of five. And then for each one next to your list, one by one, write Alhamdulillah. And try to mean Alhamdulillah from within. And then for each one, say the dua in Surah Al-Ahqaf, Surah 46, Ayah 15. And then the first part of it is Rabbi Auzitnian Rabbi Auzitnian Ashkura Amta So my Lord guide me to be grateful for what you bestowed upon me and upon my parents. Surah 46, Ayah 15. Okay. And you have to do that every day and you can't repeat. 
Okay. Some students, they can do it in a notebook. Some students, they do it on their phone. Some students, the only way they can do it regularly is if they text me every day. Right? And it's also fun enjoyment for me. Okay, how long before they mention the Quran? Like, okay, they've mentioned Star Wars. They've mentioned apples and then the Quran. Right? Stuff like that. Right? One student today was like otters, tigers, pandas. Right? Uh, and then, depending upon what they need, uh, after that's been established, I also tell them, if you do this on a regular basis, you will see its effects in about six months. One student who kept resisting doing this finally started doing this, and she says within a few weeks of it, she said, I was at my sister's graduation, and I started feeling this thing that looks like gratitude. And I give it a 6 out of 10 as far as emotions go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But with some students, then I add to that, now one of those every day has to be about your father. Especially if their father was a tyrant, or if their father was, you know, not a positive presence in their life, okay? Meaning looking for where is in their mind the breakdown, and they have to find reasons for gratitude, okay? So that's now establishing a baseline, okay? Now in terms of thought, uh, I ask students uh, every year to go through a translation of the Quran, assuming they, they can't understand it in Arabic. And the first assignment that I give them when they're reading translation, usually I give them Halim's translation. Uh, I have issues with all the translations, including Halim, but that one is the easiest. Um, every time there's a reference to Allah, underline it. Okay. So now you're not just reading it to consume, you're reading it with a focus. Okay. And underline every single reference you see to Allah, even if it's a preposition or a pronoun or an attribute. Do 20 ayahs a day. And if you can be pretty consistent you're going to miss days here and there. Then the next month, increase it to 30. Next month, increase it to 40, so forth and so on. 20 eyes a day is literally like 60 seconds. The gratitude assignment is like 60 seconds. The gratitude assignment starts feeling like push-ups because then it starts getting difficult to list things. And what that will also do over the course of six to nine months, you'll finish the Quran at that speed, inshallah. You'll finish the translation. And you will then also start looking for Allah or the signs of Allah outside of your Quran translation. All this stuff is field tested. And then in developing a relationship with the Prophet, peace be upon him, once a year go through a book of Sirah and start easy, start with something like Tarak Ramadan and go through a book of Shama'il, attributes of the Prophet, peace be upon him. But when you go through attributes of the Prophet, peace be upon him, then look for those attributes in other people. So the example I always gave is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, had a separation between his two front teeth. So every time you see someone with that, think of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So you are looking for attributes of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and other people. That is part of the development of love for the Prophet, peace be upon him. So how can I help develop love for Allah, love whom Allah loves, the Prophet, peace be upon him? And then for some people, that might extend... How do I develop love for the Prophet? Love those whom the Prophet loves, peace be upon him, which would be his family, his companions. So it might extend to that. And that's now developing a baseline in terms of knowledge. And then once they uh, complete the exercise of underlining, then I shift to other other assignments, building on that. And then depending upon what they seem to need, then things will work from there. And somewhere in there, like embodiment is part of this, and also service.
service, like I make a point to a lot of students, anxiety is a real thing and often it's physiological. Depression is often a real thing and often it's physiological. So it needs to be addressed. But there's some lesser forms of, of depression that can be treated um, by service. Meaning, make other people happy. And with some students in Loyola, uh, we'll go through uh, books together or readings together. With some students, it's Ghazali. With some students, it's Rumi. With some students, it's Riyadh Salihin. Some students, it's Quran itself. Some of these recordings you can find in my SoundCloud. Like if they give me permission to record, then I post it. Um, uh, SoundCloud.com slash Omar Musaffar. Um, they're all very, very bad recordings. It's literally like a phone just sitting there. And, um, um, and a lot of times it's for them to take notes. You know, they'll listen and then take notes later. But it's literally, we'll go through, we'll read, and we'll interrupt. Uh, with two students, two or three students, I'm going through a book by Talal Asad on secularism to get them a sense of how to frame what is religion, what is secularism today. Uh, really depends. Depends on what the student seems to need. Any other questions or thoughts? Autobiography of Malcolm X, James Baldwin. I mean, it's not necessarily uh, a Muslim writer. Some students, we did Socrates. Yeah. Even Amina Wadud. The, we discussed Amina Wadud and explored her, her ideas. Yeah, all kinds of people. Any other questions or thoughts? I think we're done. I think I'm supposed to go to the next group. If not, then we have plenty more stuff we can, we can discuss. Uh, otherwise, uh, if I can give any of you any help or any communications, it's easy to find me, either from, from Sheikh or just do Muslim Chaplain Loyola, and you'll find my, my contact info. And I'm happy to give you my number, 630-881-5211. If you text me, let me know who you are. Yeah. Sometimes the students say, hey, Professor Muzaffar, okay, what about blah, 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 and then I'll respond with, who are you? But like I said, uh, you guys have, mashallah, you have a gold mine in Alam, and especially you have these gems in Abdul Nasser and, and Mufti Kamani. And then I heard Masood Ahmed is also one of your teachers. Yeah, I just found out on the way here. And through one of my teachers, I've also, I don't know him personally, but I've also heard that he's also a giant. So, and use your full intellectual capacity going through all this, right? I mean, for students who go through doubt, uh, if they're willing to do it, I tell them, okay, the prescription for doubt is right there near the beginning of Al-Baqarah. Come up with something that can compete with Al-Baqarah, right? Meaning use your full intellectual power. Either write something or read everything and see if you can find something that can, that can compare. And part of that is I'm requiring them to use their full brain. Okay. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so have you entered in the perfect time. Uh, I think I stop right here. And then, and then I'm supposed to go to the other couple house or something? Or? Yes, we'll have we'll, we'll break for lunch. Yeah. And then uh, afterwards, a third period. All right. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasakfirukana tubi lake. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasakfirukana tubi lake. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasakfirukana tubi lake. Wa akhirat da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah tell the word you all.